Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the show, JP Albano. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, Victor. Great to have you here. Now, JP, you are a relative rookie in the world of real estate investing, but what intrigues me about what you've done is you've done things quite a bit differently from what most people are taught to do. A lot of people start out small and they go bigger. Tell me, how did you get into your particular path and the journey of real estate investing? Appreciate that. So when I realized I wanted to create passive income, I went down this path of, of discovery. And I looked into the various vehicles that generates passive income and found real estate. And of course, as you go into real estate, you uncover there's a variety of niches and a variety of ways that you can, you can make a, an income uh, in real estate. And I found the blogs on, on biggerpockets.com. And I remember getting one of the Bigger Pocket resources. And it talked about their strategy, their, their Burr strategy, where you buy, you rent, where you rehab, you refinance, you rent out their, their, their homes. And you do this over and over and over again, many, many times. And at the end of this, this roadmap, there was a picture, an illustration of an apartment building. It might have been like a 20 unit or so. And I remember thinking to myself, why don't I just go for the apartment now rather than, than go through all this single family stuff? And it just really clicked for me, the mechanics and the, the mathematics of it all. And of course, as I started going through that process, uh, learning and trying to get educated and, and listen to various resources, you learn that it's a whole new world. And uh, there's quite a bit of learning to, uh, to take on. I believe for a long time that it's actually easier to go bigger. And in fact, it kind of reminds me of those folks that coming out of high school, they say, you know what, I want to be a doctor when I grow up, but that's hard. So I'm going to go to nursing school instead. I mean, no one would ever do that. And yet sometimes people in the world of real estate investing say, well, I want to go after apartment buildings, but that's hard. So I'm going to go after single family homes instead. It's kind of the same thing. Agreed. And I feel like it comes down to a lot of limiting beliefs that we all have in the back of our minds. And we feel like, at least for me, personally speaking, we feel or we make the excuse that, well, there's a big risk, a big perceived risk with going with this, this big endeavor, going to medical school, becoming a doctor, buying a giant apartment complex. Let me start small, dip my toe in the water. And to the point that you're trying to make here, what I found is, is by going through and owning smaller properties, 12 units, 28 units, and finally seeing the light of day, that it really does just make sense to go after the bigger ones out of the gate if you can. It's incredible how the sage advice that you get from mentors that tell you this, go for the big ones, it really does make sense. And I feel like it's one of those bits of advice that you really fully only appreciate having gone through it. So you skip flipping houses, you skipped buying the triplex or the fourplex. What was your very first multifamily project? Very first multifamily project was uh, where I syndicated with three other partners, a 28 unit uh, apartment complex in Houston, Texas. And uh, we, our first deal we syndicated, which was added to the, the fund. We raised money from, from investors, about 25 investors in the deal. We think we bought it for about $2 million or so. We raised about 700 grand and each of us put in our own money into the deal, uh, which went in as, as LP money. And um, we spent, well, the four of us, almost every, almost every other day, every week for the first uh, eight or nine months in the deal with our, with our sleeves rolled up. We had hired a third party property manager and uh, going into the project, we kind of expected that it's going to be great. You know, we'll, we'll coach the property manager along, we'll do our weekly calls and make sure he's hitting our KPIs. And uh, we couldn't have been further from the truth. That's such a common story. It's amazing. 
we could spend a lot of time just talking about property management. Property yeah. managers often, they really see two ways to make money. The one type of property manager is the one who is going to make their income on the back of the property owner. The second type of property manager is the one who thinks and acts like an investor, and they recognize that their path to making money is by maximizing the revenue for the owner. And oftentimes, the vast majority are of that first category. Unless you find the ones that are really investor-focused, you're really setting yourself up for negative cash flow and a world of pain. That's right. And, you know, to your point, I'll connect the dots here a little bit. To your point about going big, what we found is this small property, 28 units, is, is kind of no man's land and it creates opportunities for investors and, and, and it creates problems for others. So if you are someone that's looking to get your first apartment, you're not going to have a lot of competition. In my experience, you're not going to have a lot of competition by going after units that are under 50 units or so. At the same time, unless you're local to the property and you are able to manage it uh, on your own or with with, with partners, uh, you might find, even in a, in, a, in a major city like Houston, we found it was hard to find property managers that would handle that property. And so what we ended up doing is, is taking on property management ourselves. One of my partners is, is local in Houston, and, and we've been taking it over. And it's, it's gone wildly successful as a result of that, but that wasn't part of our original plan. But we were lucky enough to be able to, to pivot and make it work. But that might not be everyone for everyone. So keeping with the theme of going bigger, what did you do next? So the next thing uh, I did, like any uh, sane person, I went smaller. Uh, I went for, uh, I put a 12 unit together, uh, a 12 unit deal together uh, with me and a number of people in my network. That was, uh, there was some strategy behind that. Um, there was a n- number of people that could have been potential partners for, for us. Um, the deal was located just outside of Atlanta and I was living in New Jersey at the time. I was going to use that deal as a, uh, as a, a flag or a stake in the ground when I would talk to brokers in the Atlanta area that I actually have property in Atlanta as, as prior to that, my only deal was, was really in Houston, Texas. So we bought a deal that was um, relatively cheap. It was, we bought the property for a million dollars, a 12 unit. I pulled some partners together. We each put in some money and we, we just bought the deal pretty simply. Um, and what I've been suffering through with that deal is uh, while it is a relatively new building, it's built in 2001, renovated in 2015, our third party PM hasn't really been giving it the love and care and attention that I require or expected to, to get. And as a result, it just requires a lot of care and feeding. And unfortunately, the money, the profit that we make from it isn't really worth the time. At the same time, it's also not worth the time to just let it go. So I have to manage it. And that's where I've kind of learned the the painful lesson of it just doesn't make sense to go smaller or even small. So that wasn't where you finished. You've done bigger things since then, correct? That is correct. So uh, right after that, about a couple months later, got involved. Very good partner of mine, a friend of mine. We worked together on acquiring a 96-unit uh, apartment complex uh, just east of Atlanta uh, that we, we put together in September. We syndicated that deal. That's been a, a fantastic deal uh, to work through. Not the same problems that we'd have on the 12-unit, different problems, uh, some some crime problems. We had our, our, We had two fatalities on that property uh, one right before closing and another one right after closing from a shooting. That always um, gives you a little bit of gray hair. Very unfortunate, but part of life in, in that particular class of real estate. And then the next property that my partner and I had picked up is a 57-unit property right by the airport in, in Atlanta. And that is an amazing property. We can do a whole case study on that on that property by itself. The high levels of it being original owners for the last 60 years run as a weekly rental acquiring at a cost basis of about 17000 a door, which for Atlanta is very, very low. My team has been doing a wonderful job of, 
of repositioning it and, and really improving the quality of life for the, the people that live there. I love that. I love that. Yeah. When you go into buying a property, there's really a couple of different decisions to be made. First is the size of the property, how many doors, but the second is also the asset class. Are you going A, B, or C, hopefully not D? How did you choose this particular asset class? I chose B and C class assets, uh, namely because when I started, A seemed too far out of my league. So let's talk about limiting beliefs. I wanted to pick properties that allowed for cash flow as part of their overall investment strategy. And in my experience, A-class properties, and at least the markets I'm looking at, don't really generate the levels of cash flow that my investors are looking for. I feel like in a a short period of time, I'll be going after the A-class, but for now, B and C still represent great value for the dollar, meaning you can buy a property that's 15, 20, 30 years old, still got good bones to it. You just need a little bit of TLC to make that pig smile again and work with the existing tenant base and bring those rents closer to market, if not at market rate. Certainly working class housing is a place where there's a tremendous amount of demand, but it's not just demand that matters. You've got to have the combination of demand plus ability to pay. How do you make the assessment, even in working class housing, that there's sufficient job growth, sufficient job strength, make sure that your tenants have the funds to pay the rent? These are great questions. And uh, I've gone through extraordinary lengths, almost uh, debilitating lengths in in analyzing those sort of things. I spent a good amount of time researching how to be a good demographer, what sort of metrics to look at when analyzing deals in areas. But to answer your question specifically, when I look at cities to invest in, places in the Southeast and, and, and South, I look for places that have really strong job population growth. Population growth usually comes as a result of strong job growth. So you'll usually see those two metrics closely tied together. So a lot of people moving in, a lot of people moving in because of, of jobs that are being created. And the next thing I look for in the area, usually one to three mile radius, if not five mile radius, is the median household income of the neighborhood. And I like to see those median incomes of at least thirty-five to $40,000 a year, because that's typically where income level is for people that are going to be living in workforce class housing to be able to afford the rent. The other metric that I'll add to the mix, just for good measure, is look at the median household prices for the area. So for example, if you're looking at an apartment complex and right around the street, homes are selling for $70,000 a door, it creates a, a risk for, for you as the investor because it won't take a lot of, of savings for that particular tenant to save up money to go buy a house. I like to look for home values that are at least 150000 if not more, in the area. And that's called a price-to-rent ratio. And that's a, a topic, a longer topic for discussion. But I try to look for price-to-rent ratios in, in a particular uh, metric of about 12 to 25 or 30. I love it. Well, if folks want to learn more, if they want to get in touch, what's the best way? So folks can reach me at my email, jp at refreshrealtygroup.com, or you can reach me on jplbano.com. I love it. Well, JP, great to connect and great for you to share your story. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to JP at jpalbano.com. That's jpalbano.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.